So please let yourself come in and get settled again. So let yourself sit in a way that's at ease, comfortable. Listen. Listen to the baby. (laughs) This evening I'd like to talk a bit about the wise use of Eastern practice in Western culture and some of the quality of discriminating wisdom that can be helpful in doing so. And perhaps in some ways what I'll speak about is not so much a beginning talk for those of you who are new, but there still hopefully will be something of relevance in it for you. Um, I'll begin with a story, a kind of a Zen fable, um, of a Zen disciple in recent years who faithfully Um, sent his master accounts of his spiritual progress because the master had given him some Zen instructions and then he said, I'm leaving to go and what would you like from me? And the master said, well, I would like you, you know, to let me know how you're progressing. In the first month, he wrote, oh, my practice has opened fantastically and I feel an expansion of consciousness and experience of oneness with the whole universe. (laughs) The master glanced at the note and threw it away. The following month, his letter said, I finally discovered that the divine is present in all things. The master seemed disappointed. In his third letter, the disciple enthusiastically explained, the mystery of the one and the many has been revealed to my wandering gaze. The master yawned. (laughs) Months later, another letter said, no one is born, no one lives and no one dies, for the self does not exist. The master threw up his hands in despair. (laughs) After that, further months passed, two, three, five, a whole year. The master thought it was time to remind his disciple of his duty to keep him informed of his spiritual progress. The disciple wrote back, I'm simply living my life, and as for spiritual practice, who cares? (laughs) When the master read this, he cried, Thank God he got it at last. So that's a story to begin with. And the focus of this evening's talk came through uh, some teaching that I did in Europe, in Zurich in particular, with some members of the Jungian community there, friends, and also some who'd been involved very much in Tibetan Buddhist practice, practitioners and scholars. And at some point in this dialogue of Eastern-Western psychology we're doing, um, this one man, who I respect very much, began to speak about how the Dalai Lama, who had been his personal teacher for um, a number of years, uh, one of the key phrases the Dalai Lama used in the spiritual development of 
our, our, our presence and our compassion is to abandon our self-cherishing attitude, to let go of self-cherishing. And I've heard the Dalai Lama speak about this very often, um, uh, to get beyond our self-cherishing attitude because there's only one of us and there are so many others and to think of others and not ourselves. And as, li- as I listened to it, um, I found myself um, reacting to it, listening to it, and hearing it in a way that it didn't sound right to me exactly. And so we began this dialogue. And I'll continue with you. The spiritual practices that come through Buddhist tradition and in many great lineages involve a respectful attention to our bodies and hearts and minds, our life, a kind of mindfulness. They involve the art of letting go, of offering forgiveness, of compassion, of a kind of release of things that brings us to a freedom And this is the freedom of the heart in all the changing circumstances of life. And there are many ways that one can cultivate this letting go, this mindfulness, forgiveness, and compassion. It happens often that we take a rich tradition of practice like the Buddhist tradition from Asia or Hindu and other such Eastern cultures, which have such value in them, these practices for all human beings, But sometimes we take them and we kind of swallow them whole. And in doing so, we can lose our bearings or lose our own inner Dharma wisdom. And by doing them in a kind of imitative way, which is natural in the beginning, but after some time, it's almost as if we're doing someone else's practice or doing it for someone else for too long. We're trying to do something spiritual, like that first kind of humorous letter pointed out, instead of becoming the Buddha ourself, instead of awakening our own Buddha nature, we're trying to follow some other recipe. Now, one of the central texts that's repeated over and over in the Buddhist tradition is um, the Kalama Sutra, which took place when the Buddha went to a village in India where many, many different teachers had come through over the years offering a huge and diverse range of spiritual teachings, often one in conflict with another. Um, I somehow suspect that the Kalamas um, had an experience like one can easily have in contemporary Marin County (laughs) where we have the guru of the month, you know, and we have the Fairfax Lama and the San Anselmo Lama, you know, and the Mill Valley Swami and so forth. And, and it's really a little dizzying in some way um, because a lot of it's rich and very beautiful, but sometimes they're not saying the same thing. So the Buddha came into the Kalama's village and said, um, you know, he was going to teach. And they said, wait a second, we don't want any more teachings. We've already had all these people coming. We don't know how to sort sort out what we should follow and what we shouldn't. And he said, it's fitting that you should doubt in this situation. Um, For the spiritual wisdom you seek should not be decided by what you hear or following tradition 
or relying on text or because of reasoning or logic or because some elder or teacher has uh, given it to you out of respect to them. But when you yourselves know in your own experience, in your heart, that certain things are unhealthy, that when these things are entered into, undertaken, or practiced, they incline toward greed, hatred, delusion, toward suffering for yourself or others, you should see those and reject or abandon them. And similarly, when you see and know in your own experience that certain activities and words and inner practices are healthy, beneficial, when entered in upon and acted upon or undertaken, they bring well-being, compassion, peacefulness, awakening, and happiness. Those, then, you should take however small they are and follow them. There's a poem from Rumi in the ocean of his poetry that's a little like the Dalai Lama's uh, concern to get rid of our self-cherishing attitude. Rumi says, When you do things from your soul, you feel a river moving in you, a joy. This is like the Kalama Sutra from the Buddha. When you do things from that place of knowing, there's wonderful quality. When actions come from the other section, the feeling disappears. Don't let others lead you. They may be blind or worse, vultures. Reach for the rope of God. And what is that? Putting aside self-will. Because of willfulness, people sit in jail. From willfulness, the trapped bird's wings are tied. From willfulness, the fish sizzles in the skillet. The anger of police is willfulness. You've seen a magistrate inflict visible punishment. Now sense the invisible. If you could leave selfishness, you would see how your soul has been tortured. We are born and live inside black water in a well. How could we know the open field and the sunlight? Don't insist on going where you think you want to go. Ask the way to the spring. Listen. Pay attention. Then your living pieces will form a harmony. There's a moving palace that floats through the air with balconies and clear water running in every part of it, infinity everywhere, yet contained under a single tent. Find that. So here's Rumi, in some ways, mixing these two things, saying, well, listen for yourself. But put aside self-will, put aside your willfulness. In the teachings of the Dalai Lama about not practicing self-cherishing, it comes together with the practice of exchanging self for other, giving away your happiness and taking on the suffering of others so that you can purify yourself and be free. The third Zen ancestor puts it this way, another set of this kind of language, if you will. He says, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, of good and bad, right or wrong, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. 
If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinion for or against anything. This true way is like vast space where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. If you wish to move in this true way, do not dislike even the world of senses and ideas. Indeed, to accept them fully is identical with true enlightenment. So you hear these teachings. When love and hate are both absent, everything is free, open, and clear. Get rid of willfulness and the self-cherishing attitude. And then Shantideva, the last one, who is one of the, this is called the guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life, and the text that the Dalai Lama loves to teach, where Shantideva says, speaking of patience, whatever wholesome deeds, such as venerating the Buddhas, practicing generosity, even if they have been amassed over a thousand eons, these deeds will all be destroyed by one moment of anger. There is no evil like hatred and no awakening like that into patience. And thus should you strive in various ways to meditate on patience and abandon anger and hatred. So those are the teachings. And there's a tremendous freedom that they express in the moment that we step back from the dramas of our life trying to make things a certain way, trying to control others, trying to control the circumstances. Step back from identifying and struggling with life. There can open an enormous freedom where things are just as they are. And we're at peace with them, the suchness of things. A kind of equanimity where we don't reject a single thing in this world. One of the stories that's quite well known, again from the Buddhist tradition, was the sage Nagarjuna. And Nagarjuna at one point was given, um, even though he was a monk, he was such a a wonderful teacher and, and master, meditation master, that the king of one of the realms that he walked through gave him a golden begging bowl as kind of his honor. So one night, Nagarjuna was... um, uh, about to lie down to sleep among the ruins of an ancient monastery, and he noticed a thief lurking nearby behind the columns. So he called him over, Hey, you, the thief, take this, and held out the golden begging bowl. That way you won't disturb me while I sleep. (laughs) The thief eagerly grabbed the bowl and made off, only to return the next morning with the bowl and a request. He said, when you gave this golden bowl away so freely last night, you made me feel poor. Teach me how to acquire the riches that make this kind of light-hearted detachment possible. And there are other stories, the kind of stories that you hear um, taught to children in the Buddhist countries about how the Buddha gave his own body to a mother tiger who, didn't, who was ill and didn't have the strength to feed her children. Or in another lifetime as a prince, he gave away his family when someone asked for them. He gave away his own children. Um, Just not being attached to anything. Right? So these are, you know, not self-cherishing, not possessing anything. Now the question is, is this the right teachings for us? (laughs) 
isn't it? And can we live in this kind of an ideal? I remember watching my teacher Ajahn Chah when I was first in the forest monastery. And You know, when you're on retreat in the beginning, you have a lot of difficulty. Almost everyone does. And I was struggling and trying to get my mind quiet and meditating. And also, as I was struggling, I began to get irritated by things around me. They weren't the way that I wanted them to be. And even Ajahn Chah, at some points, I'd kind of look at him critically. And one day I said it. I was just kind of in a bad mood. And I was watching him fuss over something in the monastery and try and get the monks to do it right. And I said, you know, sometimes you look attached to me too. You know, (laughs) you don't seem so much like the Buddha. And he said, that's a really good thing. I said, why? I was was in a kind of bad mood. I said, why is that? And he said, because if I seem like the Buddha to you, then you, if I acted that way, then you'd still be caught in thinking that the Buddha is out here somewhere, and he's not. In Tibet, there's a saying that the ideal distance for one's lama or guru or meditation master is three valleys over. And the valleys in Tibet, we're not talking like San Geronimo Valley. We're talking valleys that have, you know, 20,000 foot peaks in between. So three valleys over is a great distance away. And it said this is the perfect distance for venerating your guru or your lama and receiving most, most skillfully all of their teachings. This is from Norman Fisher, abbot at San Francisco Zen Center. Ideals are reflections of our deeply spiritual nature. But as we know, ideals can be poison if we take them in large quantities or if we take them incorrectly. In other words, if we take them not as ideals but as concrete realities. Ideals should inspire us to surpass ourselves, which we need to aspire to if we are to be truly and fully human and which we can never actually do exactly because we are truly and fully human. Ideals, then, are tools for inspiration, not realities in themselves. The fact that we have so often missed this point accounts for the sorry history of religion in human civilization. If rightly understood, ideals make us lighthearted and give us a sense of true direction. So here's the kind of confusion, then, going on a little bit further. I'm sitting there and this person is teaching about no self-cherishing, no grasping, non-attachment and so forth. And then one woman raised her hand and said, what do you do if you're someone with not very good boundaries, who's always giving everything away and, and in the end um, uh, feels like they're used by other people and don't know how to take care of themselves? Um, what should I do? And some man raised his hand and he said, well, I hear this teaching from Shantideva about a moment of anger wiping out all my eons of spiritual practice, but um, I get angry. And sometimes it feels like I need to. Is, have I wasted my time? You know, is it all gone for naught? In raising these questions, I don't intend to answer them. <laughs> I'm going to raise more questions instead. Um, Rather, I want to invite us together to consider and reflect, as the Kalamas had to do, on what is it that really will bring us to freedom in this life, in this body that we have, in this time.
Now, a couple of the problems that are particular to our time and not seemingly so common in the Buddhist countries and ethos in which these teachings come, one of them is that a lot of Buddhist meditation practices and Buddhist psychology presumes a somewhat healthy sense of self. So that, for example, when we teach a three-month retreat in in East Coast in our center in Barrie, and we teach this pure mindful attention, just noticing what comes and goes with awareness and compassion for three months in silence. And we're going to start some long retreats here too this winter. We'll do a six-week retreat and then a two-month retreat next year. Um, What I discovered was that half the people, if a hundred people come to that retreat, half of them can't even do that practice. Half of them are working with forgiveness and struggling in themselves and and unworthiness and, and various things that it's almost impossible to just sit there and pay attention without struggling with things. There's a lot of people who come whose primary practice for a long time is healing. But Buddhist psychology presumes somehow a kind of healthy ground to start with. Turns out it's not so in spiritual centers, not you, but, but <laughs> spiritual centers seem to attract other people who are wounded, right? <laughs> the second related problem to the fact that Buddhist psychology presumes a healthy sense of self is that in the West there is an almost ubiquitous um, underlying common sense of unworthiness, of self-criticism, of self-judgment or self-hatred, a lack of inner nurturance. So that when Westerners hear Shanti Deva saying a moment's anger will you know, do away with eons of practice, or they hear some of the meditation instructions from the um, four right efforts from the Buddha and the Satipatthana Sutra and so forth, you know, or teachings who say, abandon concern for the body and really go for, you know, nirvana or whatever it is. What happens is that it reinforces for certain people the idea that I'm not good, my body isn't good, my emotions are no good, I'm actually not a very good person anyway. And Buddhism is saying if I have anger and if I cherish anything or try to attach or possess anything, I'm not a very good meditator and I'm not a very good Buddhist if you want it to be, or, or whatever. And it reinforces that. And we try to be compassionate. And people will often raise their hands and say, I've tried to live this great compassionate life, you know, and, what, and I feel I can never do enough. Um, and yet, you know, I've got this autoimmune disease or I'm, I'm wasting away because um, their compassion is for all the beings of the world except one. You know who gets left out? Themselves. Now, in the teachings of loving-kindness, oh, just a tiny bit more, don't close it. It gets too hot in here. Is it, fr- is it freezing? This is exactly what I'm talking about. She is freezing. They are open. They are open. Yeah. But if we close all the windows, there's too many people. This is exactly it. We'll get to this point. Thank you for (laughs) illustrating it. 
There is in the Metta Sutra, or in some of the teachings of Metta, loving-kindness meditation, a place where, it sa- where the Buddha says you can search the entire universe of trillions of forms of beings and not find one being more worthy of compassion and loving-kindness than the one right here, yourself. But often that person gets left out in our spiritual idealism. And when I gave that teaching in this group in Europe, the, some of the Europeans, especially those who'd done these kind of Tibetan trainings, couldn't believe it. They said, what text is that in? I want to see this. I don't believe it. That's too self-cherishing. <laughs> and for me, I found myself in recent years giving to people the instruction, people that I know who've practiced over years, um, a practice of doing, for example, one year of loving-kindness meditation just for yourself. That's your meditation. Do a year of metta just for yourself, over and over. May I be well, may I be free from danger, inner and outer. May I be healthy, may I be happy. Oh God, some people say, I couldn't wish myself well. It's true. So this gets to be a little problem for us, doesn't it? Now here are some further problems without solutions. I tend to avoid the term ego in teaching. I, don't, I haven't used it for years because it's a kind of complicated term. And often in spiritual practice one hears about getting rid of the ego or getting rid of the self. And Chogyam Trumpa used to talk about the territory of ego, of grasping, and how we need to let go of that. And there's a truth in it in a certain way, but on a deeper level um, we don't have to get rid of the self. There isn't one, and there never has been one. I mean, the whole notion of self is the problem. It's not that we have to get rid of the self, it's rather to see that what we are is a changing process that's always changing. And that if we try to be the self of yesterday or last year, we suffer. But if we're the self of this moment and really let ourselves grow and change, there is freedom in that. There is no fixed self, and there never was. So the idea of getting rid of self is actually a a mistaken idea. How can you get rid of something that's not there? And ego is a complicated word because in a lot of Western psychology, ego is actually positive. You need a certain amount of ego strength or a healthy ego to actually even do meditation. That's the sense of kind of the organizing function of our life. But I think in a more colloquial way, people are saying, well, get rid of being egotistical. Selfishness, narcissistic, the popular phrase for ego-centered these days. But even that, it has different forms. I mean, some ways we can think, oh, I'm so great, and there's this kind of inflated ego. But there's also a kind of negative self-cherishing. I'm not worth anything. And that's a kind of ego, too, um, a needy ego, if you will. It says, well, I'm not really any good and I'm not worth anything. And even sometimes the inflated ego is really that person who doesn't feel very good about themselves and says, well, I'll show them. I'll show them I can do it anyway. So what does it mean? What are we trying to get rid of? And is there something healthy? Ajahn Chah, in speaking about no self, my teacher. He said, it's so simple. No self means we don't possess things. Even this body, if we say to it, don't get old or don't get sick, does it obey us? It follows its own laws. We only rent this house. 
How about feelings? Can you order your feelings about? Or your mind, don't think? Does it listen? Hardly. So we begin to see that there is no one who possesses these. There's earth, air, fire, water, all that combine to create a sense of person. But ultimately, there's no self, no me. To understand this, though, you have to meditate. If you think about it, your head will explode. (laughs) Once you understand not self, you understand letting go and your burdens are released. Your family life, your work, things become easier. When you see beyond self, you no longer cling to joy or sorrow, or sorrow, and in that way you become truly happy. So one side of the teachings is no self, but the other side is about Buddha nature. This true nature, or Buddha nature that we have, this inherent nature, is luminous, naturally free, compassionate, joyful. It's who you are when you let go of that other stuff, of fear and the small sense of self. And to meditate is to see all those small things and begin to let go of them. Now, Ajahn Chah put it simply. He said, the purpose of practice is to come to peace. It's not to make yourself anything or become something special, but to have your heart be at peace and open, compassion and ease, whatever circumstance. Now, how to understand these kind of contrasting teachings? I remember at one point, again, going to Ajahn Chah and complaining to him because his teachings were rather inconsistent. He would say one thing one day and another day he'd say something kind of the opposite. One day he'd talk about no self and another day he'd say something remarkable like, actually, no self isn't true, which is a rare thing for a Buddhist teacher to say. He said, self and no self are just ideas. What there is is just this. Look at it for what it is. Don't put any ideas on it. So I said, you say such contradictory things, I don't know what to believe. It doesn't even sound, you know, enlightened to me. (laughs) He loved it, actually. No one ever said this to him in, you know, his culture. So he he enjoyed this. He said, it's like this. It's very simple. There's a road I know very well, and I look down this road, and maybe it's a bit foggy, and I see someone about to fall off on a path uh, fall off in the ditch um, on the, the left-hand side or go off on a little sidetrack and I yell out, hey you, go to the right. A little while later I look down that same road and that person or another person is about to fall in the ditch on the right-hand side or go off on a little sidetrack on the right and I yell out, hey you there, go to the left. He said, that's all I do when I teach. Whatever side somebody is attached to, let go of that and come back just to be here. Now, the question from the Kalama Sutra, and really a question for ourselves in spiritual life is, what will bring us to know freedom in ourselves? What will bring us to this middle path, to this place of rest, compassion, peace in the midst of all things? Here are some further difficult teachings about this. Attachment. The first noble truth of the Buddha is suffering. The cause is sometimes translated as attachment, the second noble truth, or desire. So is attachment always bad, you Western people? (laughs) Yes, it causes suffering to be attached. 
And if you grasp your car and you try to possess it, the more you grasp it, you know, it gets scratched and gets in accidents or rust or whatever, and then you suffer. And if you grasp your children and don't want them to change or grow up or, or be free to grow in the world in their own ways, then you and they suffer. But is there healthy attachment, respect, commitment, that requires attachment. Does a mother or father need to be attached to their young child first? I had a couple come up to me, a French couple, in one of the retreats in Europe, um, and this man was torn between going back to his Zen monastery in Japan, which he loved, or being a father, and they just had an abortion and they were struggling. He, and he was saying, I don't know, I, I, money feels so un-Buddhist to me and maybe I should be a monk. And I said, well, um, what are you doing now? He said, well, we're traveling together. And I said, do you still sleep together? Yes. Do you, do you understand about birth control? Yes. Um, I'm glad you finally figured that out. You know, you have to take some responsibility if you're going to make a child or not. And you can't just kind of carry on and then say, well, actually, I really want to go to the monastery, but I want my fun first or something like that. There's some way in which those two levels were getting confused. So he said, but isn't the teaching just about non-attachment? Is it? I said, so then you could just leave her, leave all the things here. Why don't you just go to the monastery? Is there healthy attachment? Is there appropriate attachment? That's the question. How about letting go? The teachings talk about letting go. We misinterpret it a lot as letting go means letting, getting rid of. I'm angry. I need to get rid of my anger. I'll call it letting go. I've got to let go of my anger. I've got to let go of my self-centeredness. I've got to let go of my whatever it is, right? But isn't that a kind of aversion? Not liking ourselves? And how far will we get in spiritual practice that way? Not liking ourselves. You know, and people take it to extremes, letting go. There was one monk who came to our forest monastery who was... Um, not so balanced. And the um, expression of it came one day, he would sit, really, I'm going to let go, I'm going to get to nirvana. It wasn't a lot of letting go as far as it looked from the outside, but he was determined. Um, And then, you know, a few weeks later, he was seen having let go of all his robes and clothes, walking naked down the railway line that went, we were at the end of the railway line back to Bangkok, you know, 300 miles down that way. He was going to tell the whole world about letting go. Maybe letting go really means just letting be, making your peace with things as they are, or letting go in the heart. Or as the Buddha said, letting go of our opinions of how things should be. A wise person doesn't have opinions in one of these texts. I haven't met anybody who doesn't have opinions, by the way. So here's that ideal again. A wise person doesn't cling to views, and this is better, isn't grasping their They might have opinions, but they don't cling to them. And since they don't cling to them, there's nothing to argue with. They're always at peace. That's what it says. Well... Is letting go always the right thing to do? Letting go of your work or your money, you know, like that golden bowl of Nagarjuna or your children. Remember this letter from the insurance company? 
in response to your request for additional information about the accident where I had written poor planning, I'll give you further details. I am a bricklayer by trade, and on the day of the accident, I was working alone on the roof of the new three-story building. When it was completed, I had 500 pounds of brick left over. Rather than carry them down by hand, I decided to lower them in a barrel attached to the side of the building with a pulley. I secured the rope at ground level and went up to the top, swung the barrel out, and loaded the brick into it. Then I went back to the ground and untied the rope, holding it tightly to ensure a slow descent of the 500 pounds of bricks. You will note in block number 11 of the accident reporting form that I weigh 135 pounds. (laughs) Due to my surprise at being jerked off the ground so suddenly, I lost all presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope. Because of this, I proceeded at a rather rapid rate up the side of the building. In the vicinity of the second floor, I met the barrel coming down. This explains the fractured collarbone. Slowed only slightly, I continued my ascent until the knuckles of my right hand were deep in the pulley. By this time, I realized that it was not the optimal moment to let go of the rope. At approximately this time, however, the barrel of bricks hit the ground and the bottom fell out of the barrel. Devoid of the weight of the bricks, the barrel now weighed approximately 50 pounds. I refer you again to my weight in block number 11. As you might imagine, I began a rather rapid descent down the side of the building. This explains the two fractured ankles. So forth. So is there a time to let go? I remember going to have a conversation with Stephen and Andrea Levine at one point when I was very much involved in doing men's retreats, which I still love to do with men, Um, working with young men from the inner cities and working with men telling the stories of their lives and uh, sharing the difficulties of trying to be a man in this culture and trying to live in with some integrity and wisdom. Very moving, the men's retreats. I was waxing on about this stuff to Stephen and Andrea, and they weren't into it. And I said, well, you know, why doesn't, why doesn't, why doesn't it make sense to you? You know, why do you not see it as so important? And they said, from the level of work that we do, there's no difference between men and women. You know, there's grief and the healing of grief. There's attachment and letting go. And all this division and stuff, it's really unnecessary. And we actually had an argument. (laughs) Because I said, that might be so. I said, but there's a difference between men and women. (laughs) And you better believe it when you get in a group of men or you get in a group of women and there are different things to learn and so forth. And as we were leaving, Liana and I, my wife and I were leaving the house. Actually, it was Liana who, who had a kind of uh, moments of recognition, she said, you know, the, the reason that you two were in this struggle and this kind of d- disagreement about this, from her point of view, she said, is that Stephen and Andrea primarily work with people when they're dying. And when you're dying, it actually doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. I mean, you're leaving this mortal coil and the particular form of body and all that behind. So at that point, um, it's true. It's not terribly relevant. But if you have a mortgage, that is if you're in the middle of your life 
is what I mean. If you have a relationship, um, children, whatever it happens to be, and you're not ready to leave this life, then it becomes actually kind of interesting and rather relevant what form you're living this life through. So again, it's about when is a teaching appropriate for us? How about desire? Talked about attachment. Is desire bad? You know, the if-only mind, if we wanting. We know that wanting is painful. And the more wanting, the less satisfaction with what we have, the more we suffer. And desires are endless. But does that mean they're bad? And that we should seek to have no desires? Here's William Blake, where he says, you never know what is enough until you know what is more than enough. I mean, how do we go beyond desire? It's true. I mean, look at how you've learned in your life, you know? Or the road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom. Or if the fool would persist in his folly, he would become wise. Notice he says he in this case. Sooner murder an infant in its cradle than nurse unacted desires. That's going pretty far. The pride of the peacock is the glory of God. The lust of the goat is the bounty of the divine. The wrath of the lion is the wisdom of the sacred. The nakedness of woman is the work of God. So this is Blake celebrating our humanity. Is there healthy desire? Desire for awakening, desire to love others, and desire of compassion. One of my teachers in India said, the problem with you is not your desire, but that you don't desire enough. Why not desire to have it all, to open your heart to the whole of life, rather than just one person or one house? So what's healthy desire for us, if there is such? And what about passion? Is that bad? But passion for life, creativity, service, love. How about anger? Here's Shantideva, a moment's anger undoes, does years of practice. Is there a difference between anger and hatred? Hatred which grows in you until you hate, and anger which comes like a storm. And is there use for anger? Or is there something to honor about it? I mean, I'm somebody who used to be terrified of anger. I was really good in my family. My father was violent and angry and abusive. Um, in many, many ways. And it took me a long time to make my peace with anger, and part of it for myself was learning to be angry and not be so scared of it. And without doing it a bit, I don't think I could have ever really been at peace with it. And the interesting thing, if you look in the Vajrayana um, Tibetan Buddhist iconography, is there's all these angry Buddhists. And they call them wrathful, right? But there's, the, there's all these Buddhas with swords and fire coming out of their mouth and so forth. What does that mean? What would an angry Buddha be? And I don't mean that hatred or harming others is justified or beneficial. Hatred kills us and it kills another person. But is there a place then to understand anger in a different way? The same for greed and wanting. We feel insecure, needy, impoverished. Should we just take the teachings of selflessness and emptiness and give up everything? Or maybe are there certain things that we need to do in our life to taste a kind of wholeness so that we can then let go 
I ask you. Walking out of the treasury building room, he says, now I feel generous. You know? Or I think it was J.P. Morgan who said, there's a certain Buddhistic calm that comes with having money in the bank. There is freedom of heart, it is true. And there's joy and ease, and it can be found in any moment. It's the invitation of spiritual life. And sometimes it's expressed, especially in the tradition of the elders from which this practice comes from, sometimes it's expressed by absence, by restraint. And there's a wonderful place in our spiritual life for restraint, to not kill, to not steal, to not lie, to let go of greed, to let go of hatred and lack of forgiveness, to let go of delusion. But it can become very idealistic. Even nirvana, the realm where there is the unborn and the undying, neither earth or air or fire or water, just as a rock of one solid mass is unshaken by the wind or heat or snow or rain, by change of any kind, so is the heart of one truly freed from greed, hatred, and delusion, unshakable, unquenchable, un, uh, uh, unshakable by all the circumstances of the world. Delivered is such a one, free. Now, it sounds great, but it's awfully idealistic in another way. So there's this negative thing, no greed, no hatred, no delusion, no killing, no stealing, no lying, no grasping. But if it's misunderstood, it can become rigid, or we can become unworthy and judge ourselves. And there's another expression of emptiness or wholeness, which comes more out of love and connectedness, out of a place of deep trust in the world, as it is. You know, when Ramdas was here for his day of benefit about six weeks ago in the meadow, and he started speaking about how his last two books were written about service and helping, how can I help, and compassion and action. And he said, I've been a karma yogi and a, and a helper and a server for years and years. It's been my spiritual path. And he said, and written these books, and now... He said, people have to lift me up and put me to bed and pick me up and put me back in my wheelchair in the morning and help me dress and help feed me sometimes and even wipe my bottom. He said, and it's a lot easier to help. It's a lot easier to help others than it is to be helped. So what is this then in relation to giving up our self-cherishing attitude? If we give up our self-cherishing attitude to help everybody else, is that really where we're going? Or do we need to be in a place of freedom that can receive as well as give? That can help and be helped? That doesn't put ourselves up as the helper but really that we are interdependent. And out of this expression, which isn't the um, language of absence, but of wholeness, not killing becomes reverence for life, and not stealing becomes a care for all things, 
and not lying becomes using words to bring harmony and awakening and truth to all. And there's a beauty and a flexibility in this that the Tao speaks of. It says, men are born soft and supple, dead they are stiff and hard. Plants are born tender and pliant, dead they are brittle and dry. Thus whoever is stiff and inflexible is a disciple of death, and whatever is soft and yielding is a disciple of life. Nothing in this world is as soft and yielding as water, yet for dissolving the hard and inflexible, nothing can surpass it. The soft overcomes the hard, the gentle overcomes the rigid. Therefore, the master remains flexible even in the midst of difficulty. Understand this. Some of the teachers from Spirit Rock went a few years ago to India to visit um, Harilal Punja, who was a master or a guru in the Advaita tradition of Ramana Maharshi. And one of the beautiful parts of that experience for many of them is that they'd practiced for a long time trying to free themselves of greed, hatred, and delusion, trying to let go of selfishness and ambition, and come to some very wonderful openings and freedom. But they were still struggling a lot with it, because one does if you look honestly at your heart and your mind and your body. And when they visited Punja, he would look at them and say, you know, you're so beautiful, you've done so much already, you already know. You know what freedom is. You know what it means to let go. You can rest now. Trust this. You already have it. And he said it was such conviction that they realized it was true. And for a number of them, it really was a big turn in their spiritual life to be acknowledged for that Buddha nature that is already within them and within you. So this passage, as I end that who knows actually who said it. It was first attributed to Nelson Mandela and then to Marion Williamson who wrote it for him in some presidential address and then other questions have come up. But I like it no matter what. No one said it. Our worst fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, beautiful, talented? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small doesn't serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. You were born to make manifest the glory of the divine within you. It's not just in some of us, it is in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. Nati santi parang sukhang. There is no higher happiness than peace, joy, freedom of heart, nirvana, said the Buddha. And it is not far away. It is always in the present, in this moment, this day, in your life. It doesn't mean you have to give everything away and go to Thailand or Burma or Tibet. 
It also doesn't mean that you can be rigid and attached to it. But the freedom that's to be sought is not in the absence of things, nor in the grasping of them, but in this place of openness of heart, in the midst of all things. And it really is going to require your looking to see, as the Kalambas had to do, what is it in your life that you know brings you to peace, to balance, to compassion for yourself and all beings, to trust in this very life. So let's sit for a moment, if you will. When you hear all these different spiritual languages and teachings, don't believe them so easily. But look into your own heart and question, inquire. What is it that you know for yourself genuinely brings freedom, brings love, wholeness, integrity, compassion for yourself and others. One of the nights ahead, um, I'll ask those of you who come back um, some questions about healthy attachment or about desire or letting go, what you know, what you've discovered, to hear some of the wisdom from this group. Before we leave, in just a few minutes, there are a couple of um, more announcements, and then we'll do a chant and a little bit of loving-kindness. One announcement, please announce for Deborah, um, is that there is... Oh, this is... Um, you know all those people that call you about switching your phone company? Yeah. Well, Spirit Rock has a phone, <laughs> has a phone uh, um, program as well that actually is... is that, I'm, that I've joined that's really great rates. <laughs> Yes, it's not on your credit card, however. Um, and also give some money to Spirit Rock, but it's, re- it's, um, it's, actually quite, uh, um, it's actually quite a good one. So if anybody's interested in um, a, a really cheap phone service that also benefits Spirit Rock, 
Um, you're welcome to look on the back table for this orange piece of paper and see. Otherwise, wait and we'll be calling you at dinner time. <laughs> The second is um, that uh, a couple of Sangha members um, who also help care for the bookstore out there um, uh, and who are uh, really dear, uh, Pamela Myers and Donald Blasky, um, uh, she just had a stillborn child a few days ago. She was, was really, really happy about having this baby that was going to come in and it was... Um, uh, it died just before it was born. Um, and so for those of you who know, um, I wanted to tell you that. I want to do a little meta in a few moments. Um, the baby's name was Daniel Jacob Blasky, and there'll be a cremation and service on Wednesday, 11 a.m. And they ask, they send a note, we would be grateful for prayers, silence, and meta for that hour for our baby and our family. They have one other young child. Um, and as you know, in some ways, the death of a child is the hardest of all things. So, um, And then there are a couple of other Sangha members who are in the hospital or going into the hospital or things. So um, I'd like us to do a little bit of loving-kindness chanting tonight. And with it, you can think of Daniel Jacob and anyone else in this community or in your heart, in your community, or and the community of the earth that you would include in your loving kindness. And the chant goes like this. <clears throat> Sabe sata sukito. And its meaning is uh, blessings or loving kindness to touch the heart of all beings, far and near, young and old. We chant it together. Sabe sata sukito, all beings. Sabe sata sukito, Daniel Jacob. Sabe sata sukito, far and near. Sabe sata sukito, born and yet to be born. Sabe sata sukito, be held in loving kindness. Sabe sata sukito, be happy wherever they are. Sabe sata sukito, those with illness. Sabe sata sukito, may they all be well. Sabe sata sukito, all beings. Sabe sata sukito, humans and animals. Sabe sata sukito, visible and invisible. Sabe sata sukito, known and unknown. Sabe sata sukito, held in the heart of kindness. Sabe sata sukito, may they be well. Sabe sata sukito, three more times. Sabe sata sukito. Sabe sata sukito. Sabe sata sukito.
And may Daniel Jacob Blasky, wherever he is, be held by our loving kindness and spirit of compassion. And may all beings be touched by the generosity of your own heart and by the life and the integrity with which you live so that it brings blessings around you and beyond to all that lives. Have a very good week. Next week on Monday night, uh, there won't be a dinner because it's the first opening retreat here at Spirit Rock. There'll be a hundred people coming to sit a week-long retreat. And I'll be here for a little bit to introduce Monday, um, but the Monday talk will actually be given by one of my closest friends, Ed Brown, the author of the Tassajara bread book and cookbook and a very wonderful and funny and wise teacher. Um, so next Monday will be kind of a special night. Um, I believe next Monday begins 7.15. Um, so we're going to be moving 15 minutes later so we can coordinate dinner with the retreats. Drive carefully and thank you all. See you again. Pay attention and figure out the answer to these questions. <laughs> There'll be a quiz coming up. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.